Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everybody, really excited today. Uh, you, can, you can see it because uh, my friend Morgan Housel is in the house. He's in Phoenix uh, for the Wellstack Conference. I invited him over to be on the show. We're going to talk about Motley Fool. We're going to talk about investing. We're going to talk about writing and uh, the collab front. So uh, fasten your seatbelts. I have one of, uh, I think one of my favorite um, people on the internet in the room. And, and, and part of Lindsay is it's not about how big the the person is. You were asking me, what was the biggest guest I've had on my show? And I told you, like, you and back-to-back now, you and Patrick. So welcome to the Thanks for having Lindsay me. Good to be here. So Morgan Housel, H-O-U-S-E-L. That's right. Is what it, is that? Do you, norm, is it? do you normally do that with a guest? No, because I don't know what I was saying nationality. Well, nationality, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a mutt in a lot of it. There's, there's nothing really that, that sticks out, but it's a, it's a English, American? It's an English name. Okay, it's an English name. How many kids in your how many brothers and sisters? I'm the youngest of three. So there's three of you were born where? I was born in the Bronx okay, in the so early 80s when the Bronx was a third world country. And uh, did you like the Bronx? Well, I, I lived in the Bronx till I was two, and I oh. lived in Rochester, New York, till I was six, and then I moved to California after that. Okay, so, so Morgan, for people who don't know him, you'll get to know him here today. Um, is, is the mic okay? Sounds coming through okay? The... Um, is my favorite thinker slash writer slash great story on how you kind of moved up the your arc of your career to, to kind of living the life that you want to live all through the power of the word and writing. And, uh, you know, we don't talk that much, so you don't know how, how fascinated I am with the idea of writing. You know, like my... I'm pretty, I mean, you, you write almost every day. I write every day, but and I'm not a writer. I, but you know what I like about your posts is that they're very short. Because I'm not a writer. Which is, but no, but that is yeah. the key to good writing is brevity. Yeah. And you've, you've, Twitter you do a was job why I love Twitter at 140 characters. Everyone gets frustrated when they click on a blog post and then they kind of size it up by scrolling down. You realize it's yeah. going to take you 20 minutes. Everyone just kind of, ugh. But with your I, post, I look at it, I'm like, I can read this in nine seconds. Yeah. It's great. And, and the point is, why should you have to? I, I know so many of these VCs that write these long posts, and I'm like, this is not a forum for you to pontificate. When each company is different, if you can't, like Fred Wilson can do it, if you can't explain, you can't explain what the problem with seconds. the board is, what the problem of this is, yeah. and you got to bloviate, then you're that board member that's bloviating at the board member. Absolutely. At, and but no it's one's also, learning anything. It's also a barbell, too, because there is a there is a good market and a need for long-form content. Of course. But doing long-form effectively and doing it right is very difficult. Yeah. I could I think, write long-form. I, long I could write long-form, too, but I'm like... I, I want somebody to read it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for even if me, my judges, my daughter, and my wife, they like it. Yeah, no, that's good. And even a lot of posts uh, and books that are really good, and I like them, uh -huh. I'll read half of it and be like, okay, I got it, I'm done. I know. I, I'm so mad at myself because I, I buy books, and I, I start in, and I think the only two books I've read of the last 20 years that got through it word to word are like the Agassiz book. Okay. Which I don't think he wrote, but it was well ghost written. Yeah. And the Shoe Dog book. That's a great I'm book. I'm embarrassed though. Like, I should be reading books. I no, mean, I like, don't think that's bad. There's a great quote from Charlie Munker where he says, I'm not burdened by bad books. Hmm. You should not feel guilty to start a book and either say, This is dumb, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to stop reading, or say, This mm -hmm. is good, but I got enough. Yeah. I don't think anyone should feel guilty about I that. I should say, I like Kramer's first book. 
uh, uh, street yeah. street addict. Yeah, I mean, you know well, my you know my old. Can't believe uh, it didn't go to jail. You know what my old uh, AIM uh, screen name was? Uh-huh. Street addict. Yeah. Came, came from that. I gotta say, he was one of my. I mean, he was a he was an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, well, he, he was I, I guess right I'm place just right enamored with the whole thing. It's just because the whole TV and makeup. It's like his. He could have been. The fact that he was he a successful was hedge fund manager and then a more he successful access. media guy. Of course he did. He was that, no, I'm saying that, he, that I the, think he's underachieved based on his access. But wasn't that the, the kind of the story in the 90s? Like if you got access to the IPOs, which not everyone did, but if you had that access, no, it was just off to the races. No doubt. But I'm saying in terms of like celebrity, he came from nowhere. He had all these mad skills. He knew how to write briefly. Yeah. Fuck all yeah. day. I was a super fan. Yeah. And like I was, that was the first person I was a super fan of. Like I grew up without, you know, I liked Super Tramp. I liked certain weird things, but Kramer was the first guy that inspired me. And I'm like, man, the well, stock market's like, cool. And he was like the first modern financial personality. Because before that, who came before him? Hated L- it. Louis Roykeiser. That Barons? was like that was like the other. So Kramer was the first guy who kind of yeah. set the stage for everyone else. Of like, you don't show. have to be Louis Roykeiser in a suit speaking like you know, really formal button-up, you could kind of be this online rodeo clown, and people actually like that. But he wasn't a rodeo clown at the beginning. I would read oh, he, his... Oh, no, he's always been. Okay, well, then I didn't know, because I used to read him before Street.com and Smart Money, because yeah. back when I read magazines, I would wait, and he had great calls. Like, yeah. It just felt like, to me, you know, you only could get Smart Money once a month, and everything he, he said sounded smart, and it was well-written, and it made sense to me. But I think because of his kind of wild hair and his wild personality and the way he speaks, I think average people... Like, you know, my parents, whatnot, people who are not financial professionals could relate to him more. Then then I, I, I look at the, the, the person today, and I don't know him, but I just think about it feels like an underachievement. Meaning I'm sure he's entertained millions of people, but yeah. I'm thinking, dude, that guy could have been Mark Andreessen. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Fred Wilson? I no. mean, Fred no. was his investor. I don't, I don't think, and I have nothing against him. I don't know him, so I, I have no business saying this, but I don't think he's that great an investor. I'm not talking about an investor. Good. I'm talking about he had access. I'm not a great investor. In the stock market, I was just, I couldn't beat the S&P. I mean, I did, yeah. but it was just, you know, we, I didn't manage huge money, but I hated it. But just, so and you're so, saying just in terms of someone I'm who could raise money. I'm saying just in terms of that guy had so much trust built up yes. that I feel it's a massive underachievement. I see what you're saying. About, Meaning yeah. he should be running one of the largest advisory firms and VC funds. He had access to people. You yeah. don't have to be, a, listen, I became a good investor because and Kramer easily was a good investor. He may yeah. not have been able to beat the S&P, but as a venture capitalist, he would have been crushing it. He had incredible access. He's probably as close as it comes to a financial celebrity in terms of like getting stopped in the airport for pictures. Yeah, Very few so people. anyways, so that was my entree into it. Yeah. The second entree was your firm, uh, Motley Fool. So I was fascinated by Motley Fool because uh, I, didn't have, I didn't have Wall Street Journal I didn't have a Bloomberg. So, you know, back when I was running my hedge fund, I had CNBC, and I didn't like CNBC. And these two guys would come on TV. Yeah. What's their names again? Dave and Tom Gardner. Dave and Tom Gardner. And they had the hats on, and they kind of made sense, and they were promotional. And I was like, wow. They were like the stock twits or the street. They were like the opposite. They were like They were going for the mom and pops. Yeah, they were going for the mom and pops. Uh, Tremendous marketers, which I'm not, which they are. And they had, but they made mistakes, obviously, too. Everyone does. So so tell me about how you got started with The Motley Fool. Well, to take you back to 2007, kind of the dawn of the financial crisis. I was a junior in college and where, where? Uh, went to USC in L.A. 
and my plan was studying uh, econ. Okay. But I mean, I mean, I'm not a big believer in the academic yeah. prep for the job world. So when I say studying, it's like I, don't know, I didn't yeah. really do much. But my plan was investment banking and private equity. That was always what I was going to do. And this is 2007, so the world goes to shit. Financial, and then in that era, if you were graduating around that time, looking for a finance job is terrifying. Yeah, there's just nothing available. Like all the investment banks were laying off half their staff, let alone mm-hmm. you know, looking for new people. So I actually, and I, I'm, I, I don't think I've ever said this, but it's, it's, it's the truth. I actually did not think highly of the Motley Fool at the time. I didn't not, I didn't know I'm very much didn't about. Either, I didn't I, know I, very much about them. Yeah, yeah. But I think it, what little I knew, I did, I didn't really think that much. And I had a friend named uh, named Sham Gad at the time. He's a, he a great investor. Great run, name. Runs a, <laughs> Is he a wrestler? Pro wrestler. <laughs> Sham Gad. Yeah, he's a great guy, and uh, he, was, he was a good friend of mine. And one day I, I was going through the Yahoo Finance message boards, mm-hmm. like the on the for the the ticker pages, and I saw an article written by the Motley Fool that the headline caught my attention. I forget what it was, but I clicked on it and I said, "Holy shit, Sham Gad wrote this. My friend wrote this article." And I emailed mm-hmm. him and said, "You're a writer now? Like what? <laughs> what is this?" And he said, "Oh yeah, I got this little part-time gig with the Motley Fool. I'm writing these articles. They show up on Yahoo Finance, so everyone can read them. It's really, really cool." Uh, and then I got I basically got laid off from. Uh, a private equity internship that I had. The plan was I was going to stay on full time, but that didn't work out because mm-hmm. the economy was blowing up. And so I reached out to Sham, or maybe Sham reached out to me. I forget the turn of events and said, "Hey, you should, you should become a financial writer at the Motley Fool." I was looking for a job, yeah, no looking for something to do. It. Zero. Okay. And not only that, but my background before college, uh, I effectively didn't. I, I didn't have much of a high school education. Okay. I almost kind of went from eighth grade to college, not just because my teenage years were kind of a mess, but it's, that's a different story. But I had no writing background at all, zero. Okay. But Sham said, you know, you're interested in investing. You should write for Motley Fool. So I applied thinking there's no chance they're going to hire me. Um, but when they did, I thought, okay, I'll do this for a couple months and instead staying for 10 years. Wow. And so your first, do you remember, so who did you report to or what was the gig? What, what was your job description? Well, so I was what living did you in, have to do? I was, li- I was living in L.A. Molly Fool's based in, in Washington, wow. D.C., but I was, still, I was still at USC at the time. So I was a contract writer, mm-hmm. and I was, I was writing one article a day, and that was it. Um, and you kinda, had to write it? Uh, I, I want to say had to. I was a contractor, so you have some flexibility there. But and what were the parameters of what you had to write about, a ticker? No. Well, so you, when we started, it was kind of they roughly put you into a sector. And it wasn't like this is all you can do, but it's like we would appreciate if you covered this sector. So for and me, it was would banking. would by the hour or by the article? By the article. Okay. And for me, uh, it was banking. And this was 2007, 2008 when banking was like everything was mm-hmm. blowing up. It's usually the most boring industry you can think of. But this mm-hmm. was, you know, it was really fascinating at the time. But I wrote about other stuff. And so I did that for a year or two where I was just covering banks and banks going out of business, basically. Mm-hmm. And then I still started really getting interested in the economy at the time because this was the Great Recession, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. So I started writing more about macro issues, just what was going on with unemployment and what was going on with government budgets and the Federal Reserve and whatnot. And that's mm-hmm. what I wrote about for years wow. uh, after that. And then that kind of merged into... I got really interested in this idea that the financial crisis that I had been writing about, you could not explain it through any economic textbook. There's no explanation in any textbook that said that would have explained why the math people was what, too big, or because no, the, just there, because the decisions were so irrational, as uh, the economist would have said. Like there was no explanation for why people were doing what they were doing, but they were doing it, and that's when I just up got to it or, or both okay. leading up to it, during it, afterwards, or not even that. I'd say all the time, mm-hmm. going back in history. There's no explanation, there's no good explanation for why people do what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started really getting interested in like the psychology of investing. And that's where I think the, uh, the answers of investing can really be found in. And a lot of that is because I, I, I really think 
most of the analytical side of investing has been solved. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much brain power in there, so much number yeah. crunching. A lot of people do have uh, an edge in there, although the edge has to be constantly updated. Mm-hmm. But to me, the psychology side is not only not solved, I think it's unsolvable. It's always going to it's always going to be there. And I also view it as like the so base of the just pyramid. Just different layers of edge right. along that scope of psychological. Yeah, absolutely. And I also view it as like the base of the pyramid in investing in terms of like psychology is the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. And if you haven't solved, if you haven't figured out your psychology as an investor, everything above it, like the analytics yeah. and the portfolio selection yeah. and taxes, like none of it matters. Because you can, be, you can be the smartest right. analyst in the world and the best data miner in the world. Like go down the list. But if you don't, if you, have, you, if you can't wrap your head around greed and fear, None of it matters. Yeah. And and I think what I moved to angel investing was like it removed everything that I was bad at. I would meet the founders, pick the company, and I was forced to just go with it. Yeah. And so that removed – looking at prices was my weakness. Yeah. Meaning the fact that something could be traded was actually something that was never going to be fixed for me. Yeah. Because, so, so I love looking at the market and doing nothing. But when I had to look at the market to try and beat the S&P and had to do stuff, it brought out all my worst, yep. you know, uh, habits or yeah. my worst dark social, like, problems. I think, I and then as soon as I moved to angel investing, the world made sense to me is because I didn't have to look at prices. Yep. So I wasn't worried about what it's trading at. It and kind of forces a longer time horizon, too. It no forces you to be a this. better investor yep. because there's no liquidity. You have to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. You have a to write times, checks that were, are within your wheelhouse. And it forces you also, as a professional, like to pyramid, Yes, which is I can do in the stock market, but I'm never comfortable with it mm-hmm. because of the volatility, mm-hmm. the day-to-day volatility. So I luckily discovered you know, angel investing. Mm-hmm. And it makes the stock market look stupid to me. Yeah, I love the stock market, but only as just now what it's good for. It's what just would you a say? game against other people and levels of psychology. You know, all the people that follow me and want advice, I say, guys, you got to find something. The stock market is for rich people. Yeah, and so the best way to do it is just keep investing, dollar cost average into the S and P. Yeah. You can try and pick a few stocks if you want. You're probably not going to be good at it. And yeah. Here's the best strategy for picking stocks. Pick the most overvalued, most liquid stocks. That's what I do. Yeah. But not in a position that's going to change my life. What would you say is your split, not in assets, but in terms of time or curiosity between public and private markets? With time, I would say it's 50-50. Yeah. Because I feel that there's a connection between public and private markets. Of and prices keep me up on the news, meaning I don't have to read news. I just have to look at, look the, at prices the prices yeah. and I can see what's going on. So that's great. That's my hack for the news. Uh, I'm not saying I don't guilty pleasure scan news, but every time I do, I'm just sad. Yeah. Uh, so prices don't make me sad. Even when they're going down, they're signaling to me, You know, like I teach my kids, if you see red 10 days in a row, don't be unhappy. Like That's a signal. It must be nice to be not, that rich. That's good. Yeah. I'm not, it's not that I'm that rich. <laughs> it's that I've learned how to compartmentalize yeah. both my investing. Yeah. Meaning I love being able to look at the market all day and not put on a trade. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I like being able to tell other people that. And I think when we launch our trade app with Justin and, and the reward system we build in for not doing things is going to be interesting the way we're, we're developing our brokerage and things, the way Justin's thinking about it or about doing less. Um, because doing less matters. But the the main thing for me is people have to p- 
pick something for them. Yeah. You can't just, because I'm momentum, just even if you like what I do, it's likely not for you. Right. No, I think that's a really good point. And, and so I'd say I'm 50-50 because I feel understanding the public markets is my edge. Yeah. Not in terms I'm good at it, but it's my edge in understanding the private markets. Yeah. Meaning I see where trends are happening. I see where the holes are. I can see relatively what's happening. Uh, lately, it's the flipping between Robinhood and E-Trade. It's like, there's, like we're right at that thing where uh, if it flips, like it's hard to grasp. E-Trade's been around you know, so long and has all these great business models, yeah. uh, has all these assets under management. And you know, maybe I'm biased, but I, I think it's happening. Robinhood's going to well surpass yeah. the valuation of E-Trade. And it's not going to be based on the metrics that made E-Trade great. It's going to be based on the metrics that make a new social brokerage great less people more software you know yeah. more trust simplicity of business model yada 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 and everybody's like trying to figure out old metrics versus you know maybe robin hood's overvalued but you know maybe it isn't yeah and so that's what makes stocks hard is because the valuations have have the way that you can think about valuations is is so many ways mm -hmm. there's not no analyst in the world can describe the leverage and the, and the and the social global mobile you know no one can understand how big these things are yeah. or how overvalued or undervalued these things are because they're growing so fast the reason i like the private markets is for that reason too yep. at least you know i kind of have a feeling about it i trust the management team they're growing you know you know maybe 8 billion and maybe 4 billion but in a public market if i really if robinhood was public i probably wouldn't be able to hold the stock yeah yeah, and and, no, totally. and 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 so the same thing happened with me with Uber is like the minute it got to like ten billion, I'm like, come on, I you know I no. It, the only reason I let Uber in my portfolio get to ten billion is because they wouldn't let me sell it. Yeah. So that was a great thing too. That was a big op eye opener. Is like I would have sold that thing at a billion. So did you eventually sell in the secondary? I or sold. Did you wait at, IPO? I, I sold at uh, I think it was like a tenth sum at ten billion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the next day Google invested, like, you know, I, I didn't care, but I'm saying there was, the spreads were so high. Did you buy it during a round or during or No, I got it. I invested in a fund, David Cohen's fund. It was a $4 million fund. It was one of the best funds of all time. Right. Uh, and he put 50 grand in at a $4 million valuation. Yeah. And so, uh, so I remember... So I think the equivalent is I had maybe two grand in the deal. Yeah. At that valuation, though. which turned into seven trillion dollars. It's a it's lot amazing. of money, yeah. and but I sold a lot early. Yeah. And then I sold some at forty billion, and now it looks like okay. I think I'm a. That's probably that's about where four it is. Years that's about ago. where it is today. Yeah. So in yeah. the end, that's about where it is. So, but I'm saying if if certain things were public, I would behave way differently. It's interesting though that you're. Your curiosity and your interest is 50-50 public-private because I feel like that is rare. I feel like most people are one or the other. And not only one or the other, but dismissive of the other side. A lot of well, that's my edge, then. public market right. investors will look at VCs and private equity and just look at them as kind of like opportunists or gamblers. Yeah. And a lot of people in the private markets look at public equities as just – you're helping a bunch of mom and pops invest their 401k. It's just not very exciting. It's very, it's very accessible. Shouldn't be exciting. You know, we're starting an advisory firm, and I think most VCs are going to go down this path. I think Andreessen uh, uh, set off what will be some kind of trend over the next 20 years. You know, the next Goldman Sachs will start out as a venture capitalist, yeah. right, because the markets are kind of 
done, yeah. you know, with the vanguard and commoditization. So I think what you're seeing with Andreessen right now is the beginning of a new wave of what a, what a, a, a bank looks like. And I think I think the best kind of front runner to that is probably Citadel, which started as a pretty small hedge fund, ran out of a dorm, and now is effectively a top tier investment bank. Are they an investment bank? So that's, no, they, I mean, the order flow or Citadel's is getting a piece of I mean, they do, they do everything. everything. They yeah. do everything. They're, they're at exchange. They're, they do everything. They're a conglomerate yeah. of, and just print money. Right. So, yeah, they're in another level. But I'm saying the way, the way, the way Andreessen's thinking about it is just a partnership. Uh, they're going to end up being trading stocks. They're going to have wealth management. Yeah. They're going to be this lean beast built around trust and access. And listen, there's better margins. You know, when you can charge two and a half percent in your fund and not have to like rape a nation like Goldman Sachs does with <laughs> right. Malaysia. You know right. what I mean? It's like good, stealing six percent, yeah. you know what I mean, yeah. to make your year. Yeah. I think there's just a better business model in communicating with your clients. There's fees for this service. Yep. And eventually there you know, he who controls the most trust. Uh, and controls the dollars is going to be able to control the next generation of how they invest it. Yeah. And so, so firms like Andreessen are the new Goldman Sachs, which is exciting. I buy that. Yeah. And so, so look at them. Uh, you know, Andreessen does love the public markets, but eventually the private markets are going to come over to the public markets. So what I think is like all these private people who understand alpha and have seen this are going to slowly get excited about the public markets. Yep. I don't know if it'll happen over 10 years or whatever, but eventually alpha will come back into the public markets. Yeah, I think there's, a, well, there's definitely a blurring between public and private these days yeah. because the secondary market in private investing has become so large yeah. that even before Uber and Lyft and all these companies went public or Airbnb right now, which is still private, yeah. a lot of those employees still have liquidity yeah. through various means because no, the secondary Robin market Hood, is so Robin big. Robinhood founders yeah. are taking some money off the so table. That's, you know, that's, there, there's a blur. It's not, it's not just binary. You're either public or private. A lot of it is. And even a lot of the, the big shareholders of these private companies are like fidelity mutual funds. Yeah. Maybe they're not major shareholders, but yeah. they're still investors, public investors in these funds. Yeah. So it, like that blurring is... is, is Which is means a it's a great time to be an angel investor still. I keep saying, you know, too small to fail, um, stick to street alpha. All of us young people have an edge because we have our networks and we're seeing things, whether you're an investment advisor like Josh and Barry. Yeah. They may not think they're, they're, they can invest in private markets, but they're sitting there with all this alpha yeah. because they're talking to hundreds of advisors. They're running events. Yeah. You know, they're traveling the world. And eventually they're going to see a company, and Josh has been making some investments, but they're going to see a company, and it's just going to, it's going to be a layup for Absolutely. them. Absolutely, yeah. So, this is what you see, who you know. Yeah. And so, so you're at Motley Fool. And what, so, you, so now you switch your, your writing to be more about Psychology. Psychology. I look at it as like the intersection of investing psychology and economic history. That's kind of what I'm interested in. And I feel like where those two things collide. And is, is that when people to started to uh, enjoy your writing more? I, I would say, uh, so I started writing in 2008. And I would say no one paid any attention whatsoever until 2012. Okay. And then 2013 was, I feel like, the first year that people outside of The Motley Fool started paying attention. And so how did it get outside The Motley Fool? Because I remember starting to read it, but... I didn't want to go. I wasn't paying the Motley Fool. So how did I see it? Uh, Maybe on the, Yahoo or something? No, I'd say the first time it started really getting out, there's a, a link aggregator. It still exists. I think it's not as big as it used to be called Real Clear Markets. Oh, yeah. That was that, when they started linking. Big traffic. Yeah, and it's pretty good. I don't, I don't know. If it's still big. I don't, I don't check it anymore. But, but Real Clear Politics is big. It, that's huge, yeah. yeah. But uh, Real Clear Markets started linking to a few of the pieces. Yeah. And that just got exposure to other people. And it that's was just Josh Brown probably. who kind of, I think, put me on the radar in 2013. Yeah. Um, I remember at the end of 2013, Josh Brown tweeted, 
uh, he said Morgan Housel and Jesse Livermore, the the uh, yeah. pseudonymous blogger, said Morgan Housel and Jesse Livermore were the breakout bloggers of the year, right. and that like my Twitter followers like quadrupled overnight. I feel yeah. like that was and it's but and that's it, like that's what it needs in this industry. You only need like one. One you're not overnight. I you understand, but you're not. It wasn't. There's it, no overnight success. No, by 2013, I've been writing yeah. for six years. Yeah, but you sure. also need a, a sponsor, and people, Nick and Julie, these new writers also yeah. had a, a sponsor that kind of brought. Yeah, them we in. gave like Phil and I. We discovered Josh back in the day, and we just yeah, was, Josh Phil, had his own sponsors by you and Phil. Yeah, well, Phil mostly would send me his links, and I'm like, fuck, I would laugh and thought he was funny with his blue tracksuits and loved the markets, but like didn't know anything. Yeah, just was unafraid. And um, had a different angle. He wasn't Kramer. He was the new Kramer. He didn't care about the market so much. He just cared about the whole marketplace. Yeah. Um, I think Josh is also equally funny as he is smart. And yeah, he's, he's I mean, very he's funny and very smart. And those two combinations don't exist next to each other very often. He's the only person, I don't watch TV, but he's the only person on CNBC who both sides can put up with. Now, obviously, once you go on TV, people hate you, but uh, he, he's dealt with it pretty well. I worry about him being on TV because it's just, it's always an, a bad end game. <laughs> but he seems to be doing well with that. And that's a hard, that's a hard line to toe. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But he's the, the only person on. who I think he could be like a s- legit stand up comedian, and yeah. I would trust him running my parents' money. Yeah. Those, that's, so that so that's, that, so for sure. So he, he outs you, you become a little bit of a celebrity. Um, when you the process today, you we'll get to the new the, your new career, but uh, you, where you're at now. So you're up at Motley Fool, and how does it how does that change? Uh, well, so I was they let you write whatever you want. Yeah, pretty much. I think that that was a. I mean, in my time at Motley Fool, I wrote almost three thousand articles, a little more okay. than three thousand articles, and I, I don't think any actually got rejected. But that's kind of that's kind of true for how all their writers work. Uh-huh true to like the motley part of the name uh-huh. there's a big variety of opinions and there's okay. no central company you know line that has to be towed it's a lot of people on the platform disagree with each other mm-hmm. so i was i was writing a lot um and i was a of the uh, 10 years i was there i was a contractor for seven i was living in la and then Got seattle it. at the time and then i moved out to to alexandria uh, after that and i was that an employee where is? yeah okay. i was an employee in the office for about three years and still doing like the same thing yeah i like this so that was only the only time in my career that i've been uh like had a had a desk in an office because now I work at home. So you picked up the family and, and did that. But yes, my, my, my wife went to grad school in Baltimore, so that's what okay. brought us out to the area. And then okay. after she finished Baltimore, uh, we moved to Alexandria. And so you're doing this. They're paying you, and, and they're a private company. Yep. And an amazing company. It's great. You, what can we say about Molly Fool? It's bigger than you think. That's all I'll yeah. say. Yeah. And um, they just have a machine. Yes. And the machine hasn't changed that A lot much. of very smart people there. Great people that but work there. they made their it. mistakes. Like they had well, private does. equity and they had their messes. Everyone, well, but everyone now they're does. a but I think they, I think tooled machine. I think they've learned from the mistakes better than anyone else. So, so when they had the back screw-ups. back control of their own destiny. Yes. And, but when they had their screw-ups, and their, a lot of those were public yeah. screw-ups, I think they learned a lot yeah. about it. Yeah. And really great people. Very, very smart people. It was tough to leave, honestly. It was not. It was the hardest thing. I always say, like, Joining Collaborative Fund was a very easy decision, mm-hmm. but leaving The Motley Fool was the hardest decision of my life. Even though those were like one and the same, I split them up into different so categories. So how did that come about? Well, I met Craig Shapiro, who runs Collaborative Fund in 2015. And he's New York. He's, he's based in New York, San Francisco, kind of splits his time. So he reached out to me in 2015 and said, hey, I read your stuff. Let's just grab breakfast sometime. And I said, mm-hmm. great. And it was just, uh, so I just got to know him, not in a like, hey, do you want to come work for Collaborative Fund? Just like, 
uh, let's just get to know each other. And I think Craig and I like see the world through a similar lens. Like that mm-hmm. was pretty obvious right away. Just things that are important to me are important to him and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just really took a liking to him. And so we got to know each other over the course of a year or two. And then right. that started the conversation of what if I came and wrote for Collaborative Fund, which was not, didn't make a sense to a lot of people, including me at first and my family and a lot of people, mm-hmm. people who Craig knew because Craig was, it was a, uh, you know, seed stage venture capital firm, and I was a public mm-hmm. markets writer. It didn't mm-hmm. like those two things don't really go hand in hand very often. Right. But something that was really important to Craig is, you know, what really matters in, in venture is, you know, because money is fungible, and there's a lot of money money out there. Your ability to write a check does not set you apart anymore. Okay. Everyone's got a checkbook. Yeah. There's a thousand VC funds. No doubt. So what really sets you apart is like, what do people know about you? Do people know who you are? Yeah. What do you stand for? Yeah. What are your values? What is your vision? And none of those things matter unless you're putting them out to their world. Yeah. So the, the idea was that if I would write, hopefully things that people want to read, it would draw more attention to Collaborative Fund and just uh-huh. kind of elevate the brand. Uh-huh. And even the, what I write about is not necessarily relevant to our portfolio or right. even venture. It's, again, like the intersection of history and psychology. But the idea, hopefully, is that it'll just draw attention uh, to what we're doing and the values that we that we stand behind and just put a bigger spotlight on the team and the portfolio. Well, that part of it has been a success. But is it something that... Uh because that's obvious, it's a success. But um, how do you then day to day manage how that fits in with the company? I would say I would say there's not. I don't know how to answer that because I don't think there is a day to day strategy. My, my whole strategy so there's is no measurement. Just be Morgan. We, we measure. I think that's effectively yeah yeah. I mean, I all I think about all day is like what what am I interested in? What is an insight that I've enjoyed and how can I share that in a way that will hopefully capture people's attention that's effectively all I think about and you're not writing checks for collaborative no and you don't want to write checks I know you started out we were talking about deal flow and stuff but you just don't want to do that pretty much all that's in my blood is this writing and speaking that's all I want to do and how did the speaking come about so when I was uh, at Molly Fool, Molly Fool had a bunch of conferences, four or mm-hmm. five a year. Oh, okay. Um, so I started off just doing a couple panels. I started interviewing people. Okay. And I actually had a thing with the CFA Institute for several okay. years where I was kind of their go-to. Did interview- you like it? Uh, yeah, yeah. You like interviewing? Uh, I was kind of their go-to interviewer. So I okay. was interviewing other people for CFA conferences. Probably interviewed dozens of people at CFA okay. conferences. So that's how I got comfortable on stage. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing keynotes for the Motley Fool. Um, and that a video of that found its way to the Washington Speakers Bureau, which is a speaking agency. Mm-hmm. So then they brought me on the platform in 2016, hmm. and then I started speaking at a bunch of a bunch There's of other whole conferences. other world out there. Huh? Yeah, it's something I never. How do you decide what you're going to charge? Uh, you just pick a big number. You just put it on the table. <laughs> yeah, no, there, no, there's like, a there's a there's cool. a market like I, there's a market I've for never it. Gotten paid for it? I've gotten trips and whatever, but I, I guess you just throw a big number out. If yeah, they really well, want you, they should pay. Yeah, and there's you know there's you know various uh, you know, conferences of different budgets, different yeah. means and whatnot. Of course, there's a you know, there's a, a market out there. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously a big range of speakers, and yeah. there are a lot of free speakers, but you know, I think you usually get what you pay for yeah. for that kind of thing. Yeah, and most but it, it, it's been speak. great. So I do uh, several dozen talks a year now. Yeah. It's become a, very much like writing, where it's like I never planned this, it was never part of the yeah. idea. Uh, it just kind of happened. Um, that was my background with writing. And then speaking, if you had, so I really started speaking in 2016. That was the first okay. year. And actually really 2017. I think I did one talk in 2016. Mm-hmm. But it just, if you had asked me in 2015 whether I'd be doing this, it would like never in my wildest dreams was this ever part of the plan. Um, it, and now it's half my time. 
And what about routine as a writer and a thinker and a speaker? What's the a daily routine like? So I don't know if this is uh, advisable, or if this would be my okay. advice for people, yeah. but I really don't have any routine. Okay. And I don't, do I. I don't sketch out article ideas. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I don't sit down and outline an article beforehand. I just, w- something that's interesting to me, if I can, like, what is this, like, one little nugget of insight that I think is interesting? And how can I write a story around that mm-hmm. in a way that's hopefully going to be somewhat entertaining for people and okay. contextualize that piece of inf- that insight yeah. in, a, in an interesting way? Yeah, I think that's the same way. thing for me. I can't force it. But pretty much, even though I've been a full-time writer now for, I don't know, 13 years, the routine is basically wake up Monday morning and go, oh, shit, I got to write something this week. What am I going to do? But it you, never, it to get it you going, you read. It's mostly reading. Yeah. I spend the majority of my time reading. So me too. I mean, and I go for a lot of walks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spoke with Patrick about this on the podcast a couple years ago. And that's where I, like, quote, unquote, write most of my articles. It's just going for walks. You okay. just sit at your desk and try to grind the gears in your head. I just think it doesn't work. No. So for me, it's kind of a, a lot of reading. And then I got a little bit of an idea. And then it's like, okay, let's go for a walk. And that's where things start spinning. Okay. And then and, I get, I'll take notes. And are on the you walk. a runner or, or? I run seasonally because I live in DC. So it's, so for I mean, fitness, it's too hot in August, too cold in January. Okay. And, and so then how do you invest? So I pretty much, so I've written about this too. My entire net worth is uh, a house, a checking account, and like three Vanguard funds. That's, okay. that's a pretty much, that's, I mean, that's, that's, let's call that 95% of my net worth. So you, got just, some other, you just save money in the Vanguard funds? I've dollar cost average in the Vanguard funds, been doing that forever. And that's, that's, I, that's I, think, I think 99% of people can do that too. That's of all course, they should be doing. It takes doing. no brain power. And I think what got me into that is so my, my parents, but my, my really driven by my father, who kind of manages the money. He's, my, my, my parents have dollar cost average into Vanguard funds for like 35 years, never sold a single share. Mm-hmm. And they didn't do that because they had a grand insight or that they knew this was going to be a and great way to invest. And they suffered big drawdowns along the way. But they've also, if you were to compare them to hedge fund managers or mutual fund managers, they'd be like top quintile. Yeah. And they've done nothing. Yeah. And so the, the viewing that to me was really powerful. And right. it was also a thing that just because they've been doing that, like all of their goals are, are met. Yeah. And so that was for me. If I, if I can start doing that at a young age, yeah. the odds that by the time I'm 60 or 80 or whatever, that I'm going to look back yeah. and have not met any of my financial goals, to me, like the odds of that round close to zero. So it's like, well, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And I think a lot of the people who want to beat the market are doing that because they need to, yeah. because they need to do it's it to meet their goals. Doable. But if you don't, if you can start young and just dollar cost averaging index funds, you don't need yeah. to. Which is why I think the business is changing, meaning... The, the joy is, like you just said, 99% of people who dollar-cost average are beat everybody. Yeah. Uh, there will be drawdowns. That should be the, the title of uh, an investing book. Uh, I'm going to write that down. That's a good one. That's my next article. I'm going to take it. Okay. There will be drawdowns. We'll work on it together. Yeah. That'll be fun. Um, so there will be drawdowns. This is why I feel like Andreessen's got the right model and why I'm doing it, building an advisor as well as our uh, – social leverage is you've got this trust you've got margins you're charging two and a half and 20 there's returns to be had in angel investing but really the real joy is asset allocate the other part of the world the vanguard eastern of the world is a thing yeah. like the s&p is the s&p like it's the markets are the markets like yeah. why try and beat them to educate your clients that like the best investment in the world is just dollar cost average to I, and i actually it's just a nice thing to have that luckily the markets exist i think a really important thing for your personal financial philosophy is this idea of enough. Yeah. Of just like the market return is is enough. Exactly. And like if if the market's going to return 8%, 
Like, yeah, it would be cool if I could get 10%. Like, I'm yeah. not saying that's bad, but 8% is enough for me. Yeah. I honestly view exercise the same way. So when I do run, I run three miles. Uh-huh. And, a lot of, and I've been doing that for years. I never uh-huh. run more than three miles. And I have uh-huh. a lot of friends like, why don't you try to you do a half marathon, do something else? And my philosophy is like, three miles is enough. I'm not yeah. trying to become the world's greatest you know, athlete. Riding, too. People go, do you have a heart rate machine? I go, no, I do it for meditation. I do it between one and two hours. I know what the calorie burns are. I know I can stop for McDonald's. Yeah. Like, I'm not looking to be the fittest cyclist in the world like, like I'm whatever looking for other reasons of why i ride yeah and so luckily i think that way I try and teach other people to think that way too because enough is an important word um uh, like, like too. whatever the opposite of a type a personality swing for the fences is yeah. is me well, like I, just, my, I think i'll philosophy for a lot of my stuff in life well i think enough. you're seeing on the collab fund there is a point where things line up yeah. more so in the pro- pub- private markets and the public markets because you're yeah. just smart and you have a network and i do think people should swing but i think they should swing along the street level like with people and betting on people yeah not on these blind companies that are you know, can't understand the financials like why kid yourself yeah There's, you're a part of this machine at the public markets and i agree with you the market is go- it's fantastic that there is an index yeah, and and I guess for my uh, you go ahead and try and beat it. I'm all for you trying to beat it. Understand though the odds are low. Yeah, and and for me, what is really important in my my personal investing philosophy is what I really want to focus on. That I'm you know I need to focus on. It's integral to what I'm doing is endurance. Yeah. I just want to make sure that I can stick around for 20 or 30 years. Because if I can stick around for 20 or 30 years, then whatever the market return is, or let's say 40 or 50 years, whatever the market return is, is not going to be good enough. It's going to be absolutely sensational. Mm-hmm. So if you can take 8% and hold on to it for 30 years, or 10%, but you're going to get knocked on your ass and get scared out of the game, or leveraged and get and blow up, like it's obvious which one you should take. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for people to accept that. So if I can spend none of my time thinking about asset allocations and sectors and stocks and spend all of my time thinking about endurance and psychology. That's what works for me. It might not work for everyone, but for awesome. me, that's what fits what I do. All right. So wonder on that, since you like interviewing, do you have any, que- give you one or two questions for me if you want? I don't know, I know everything about you. No, okay. I don't think. So Howard, let, let me turn that around. How do you invest your, your personal money? I think, I think, you know, it's, it's pretty much, I'm coming to that conclusion, right? I love owning stocks. But I don't like having all my money in stocks, right? Because I have so much invested in, uh, you know, trying to have a normal life, you know, the balance. Yeah. And stocks do never have got, brought me balance. I mean, I, I get my my kicks out of stocks by writing about it and having yeah. a newsletter and talking to people about one or two ideas a month yeah. that could boost their returns. So I, I believe in indexing. I believe if you don't index, you should at least closet index, meaning yeah. – Put ninety percent of your money in indexing and take ten percent of your money and try and beat the, the market. Itch of having fun, yeah, yeah, like you won't crush yourself. Yeah, I'm like don't, don't. Like I get all these kids that are emailing me. It's like, oh, these stocks are down twenty percent. I'm like, dude, if this is what's bothering you, take this as a sign. Yeah, this is the way it is. Yeah, like why are you torturing yourself? You know, torture yourself with a little bit of money. Yeah, and enjoy the fact that there's indexing. So I really believe in it. Yeah, I just don't necessarily believe in the way they're selling me an index. Do you, so have, I do, do, you have, do you have any index funds? No. None. Because I don't believe in the product that exists today. I believe in the market return. Yeah. But I also believe, and this is what I'm going to talk to Patrick about, in the fact that I hate the idea that Vanguard's decided for me which 500 stocks I own. Absolutely. And I think so, Patrick's going to have some yeah, interesting so stuff about that. So it's the most fascinating it, thing that I've been writing about for years, which is like, tell me 
tell me what my returns would be. You know, Motif, all these companies have started and they've just been inches off. It doesn't take much to be off, but it, it goes off in massive scale when you raise tons of money and your ideas just a little bit off. If you raise a little bit of money and your ideas a little bit off, that's fine. Yeah. You're a little bit off, you blew a little bit of money and you can write yourself. When you yeah. raise a hundred million and you're a little bit off, holy fuck. Yeah. By the time you get it, it's over. Yeah. Because you've got so much moving in one direction, which is my problem with angel investing. Don't, why should you get five million when you can actually prove the first thing with one million? Yeah, yeah, like, right. Give you right. five, you burn four to figure out the same thing that you would have done with one. Exactly. So, and so not only that, but now you're why angel have, investing makes sense to me. Not only like, that, if you had five when you should have one, now you have no spending discipline, and you went and got a glass walled office. And we're and seeing we, all the effects of that. Yeah, you know, it's this chase to be the number one. You know, can lead to bad things. Absolutely. So I really believe in like pyramiding and and like starting from a corner of the world like the game of risk like you win the game of risk not by starting in europe where you're attacked by everywhere and you got to protect all these borders you win by starting in eastern australia yeah and slowly move your armies that's yeah. how the startup game is won. you wedge in and then you can explode when you see an opening you explode you pour yep. money into that wheel but uh in the in the public markets it's way different so what um what fascinates me is being able to explain that to people and yeah. try and get them to a point where the faster I can teach them that stocks are fun, but indexing is cool. My problem with indexing has been I agree with low fees, I agree with everything, but why do I have to have these 500 companies? But do you think is uh, not to get so too nuanced? I, so go ahead, sorry. Not to get too nuanced about it, but is Vanguard picking the 500 stocks that you should own, or like they're not saying we think you should own Amazon? They're just saying Amazon is big and you should own big stocks. Well, it's, it's a little more nuanced, way to, but it's yeah. way more nuanced. But what I'm saying is. Everybody's trying to help people pick their own ETF, yeah. which is no different than picking stocks. If the market return is Vanguard 500, and, and my client says, I can live with 500, and I can ask my client, say, is there like two companies? like That you hate? Yeah, is it, is is it what Patrick tobacco? Spoke about yesterday, yeah, I've been yeah. like writing about this for years. Like, well, we've institutionalized bad, Vanguard has institutionalized yeah. bad behavior, yeah. meaning Wells Fargo can rip their customers off forever and ever because that night, when the indexes are rebalanced and Betty Lou puts her money in the S&P 500 fund, yep. right? Yep. Mono just does it like a machine. Yep. She's institutionalizing bad behavior because the next she's morning- holding, She's propping up Wells Fargo stock. Money's flowing into Wells Fargo yep. stock. No, I, I so don't this that. is the real problem with ETFs. They can talk about bubbles or not. We What we've created with Vanguard by vanilla and chocolate or just vanilla, Yeah. I don't know when it ends, but I am of the opinion that that's the problem of, of indexing is we've let these companies, just Equifax, yeah. Experian, Facebook, you know, if you can't punish them because money flowing in at the end of every month, then how are you going to change behavior? I think the devil's advocate to that, and this has been brought up a bunch in the last two weeks when there's this idea of a, a bubble and passive, yeah. is that I, I haven't seen much evidence that price discovery or the ability to punish a company doesn't exist anymore. So you're saying I'm wrong? Uh, yeah. I mean, look what happened to Netflix in 2011, 2012. Stock fell 80% because they screwed up. Like, that still exists. And Netflix was a big company. They came out with Quickster, the idea they're going to spin off the DVD business. Stock fell 80%. But maybe it would have fallen 99%. Does that make a di much difference, though? I don't, I, it I don't know. It makes a lot of difference. Again, I, I'm talking about – this is all empirical. Or yeah. what, I'm talking about – again, I can't prove any of this stuff. Yeah. But I believe that if these companies remain in the S&P 500, what's their, what's their point of change? There's no way Wells Fargo, if they didn't have money flowing into it every month, 
would still even be, I think, a recognized name. Netflix, again, I don't know outliers, but what I want my clients or what I would love for people to have, instead of recreating the whole thing, yeah. let's just see what the returns would be like without these five yeah, companies. No, I think that's Much great. easier than building your own fund. And if I could tell my clients, hey, we could take out these companies with bad customer support, they treat their customers badly, we think they have a fake monopoly, yada, 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 and our returns are the exact same as the S&P over the last 30 years, Yeah. Maybe you'll feel a little better about and yourself. I, and I think That's it, about the edge of what I think is possible. Yeah, and I think if you feel better about your investments, even if taking out Wells Fargo pretty much makes zero, zero statistical, yeah, if you zero. feel better about it, yeah. if that gives you more endurance, to come that's back to my point, that's a big endurance. deal. So if and that I guess keeps, how, if that's enough. Yeah. Like if that would be enough for me, it's like I get to at least penalize them because that's gross what they did. Yeah. And if I knew that my returns weren't going to suffer massively, that would make me feel like I was in control of my finances just a little bit. Yep. That would give me the endurance I guess and how the I ability look at, to survive drawdowns. How I look at indexing, too, is I don't even think about the companies I own. Most of what I own is Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, which is yeah. 3,000. And I never think about the companies. As I look at it, it's just owning a slice of capitalism. Yeah. I just own a slice of like productive assets. Not arguing with And it, if you I, think about it as less about the individual companies, yeah. like I don't, I don't care what's in there. I just own yeah. a slice of the economy. And no, I'm and betting on humanity. But this, this has shaped how I invest in the private markets, yeah. meaning uh, I believe in Robinhood, but I also believe in Vanguard, and I haven't invested in between the two because in between the two is like build your own ETF, yeah. do all this fancy stuff, and I really think the only thing missing between the two, it's not about robo, it's not about fees, it's about a small change in behavior right, yeah. that helps you ride the wave because yep. there's, there's stock picking and there's indexing. Indexing this needs to be tweaked a little. And, yep. and Vanguard could offer this. They have the technology. They have the fractional shares. You should be able to go to Vanguard and say, here's the stocks in the Vanguard 500. Deselect three. See what the returns are. Put that money to work. Yeah. I, th I think when you're talking about Vanguard, so, so, many the of their, so many of their clients are people who just want absolutely nothing to do with investing. I get I don't it. Know, yeah. And so maybe they're doing the right thing. But there's going to be a company like a product that comes along that allows you to deselect a few companies, see what your returns are, feel a little bit better. You know, and and give you that endurance. So totally. that's one question. I, other... I've told a, I've told a couple of people about this as well. My mom a couple of years ago was going off on Monsanto. Maybe justified people have different views, but she was really upset with what Monsanto was doing. Uh -huh. And I pointed out, I said, you know, you own Monsanto in your index funds, and she yeah. was, her jaw hit the floor, yeah. and she wanted to I think, sell the funds. Yeah. Uh, so and like, so for someone for someone like for someone like her, there should just be a choice where she goes to the website. You could do this yes. and see what you and just make a choice. Right. It doesn't have to be a life changing choice where they panic and yeah. freeze, but she shouldn't be returned off investing because she's supporting Monsanto. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So, anyways, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll have you back again. Um, hope, hopefully, I'm trying to think, we, we've covered your writing, Motley Fool, Collaborative Fund, your speaking, um, the kids. Uh, sounds like life is good. Pretty good. Okay. Thanks for playing. Um, all right, thanks for coming thanks on. Thanks for having me.